Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, a clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic and the president of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. This is our weekly discussion with Dr. Maurice in which we learn about updates in laboratory testing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, good morning, Bill. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you as always here and I guess now the second week of November. Yeah, wow, it's amazing. You yeah. know, that kind of leads into what I was going to talk about today is that here we are in November and this pandemic has just, you know, been going on now. People are fatigued. They're understandably tired and frustrated. And unfortunately, I've been hearing a lot of people say, well, why don't we just all get COVID and get it over with? And more and more people have been talking about herd immunity, the idea that we're all going to, you know, get infected and have some sort of protective immunity. So what do you think about all of that? Let's, yeah. you know, let's talk about what is herd immunity, first of all, for our listeners. That's the question now. I think especially here in the U.S. as we've moved through the election, they're not really done. But I mean, that, that was everyone was transfixed by that. And now we, we come out of it and we see the cases are, are going up in our region. And so the question has been posed to me, I'm sure to you, how does this end? Right. I right. mean, people are really wondering that. I guess the end really is with herd immunity is really how it ends. So what is herd immunity? Basically, we have to think of ourselves as a collective of people as opposed to individual people getting sick. The concept of herd immunity is that if enough people get exposed to a contagious illness and become immune to it, eventually it will stop to spread because even if someone does happen to get it, most of the people that person would be in contact with would have already gotten it and therefore will be immune. So basically it's enough people start to become recovered from the illness that it prevents the spread to even those, who, those people who haven't caught it yet. Yeah, you know, I've heard the term uh, herd protection rather than herd immunity just as kind of a caveat, because like the whole herd isn't immune and some people still may get sick, but in general, the herd is protected, the group of people in this case. It's probably a better term because the other thing we still don't understand completely is how immune are people mm -hmm. after they get, you know, we see all these studies that serology testing is the main way we have to test right now. There are companies looking at things like T cells and, and B memory B cells and things, but mostly it's serology and we still don't understand how many people we know, know that not everyone with COVID gets the same antibody response, and we still don't know really how long those antibodies last or how protective they are, if there's more to it. So mm -hmm. probably herd protection is a, is a better term, I would say, than, than herd immunity. The question, of course, in everyone's mind is, well, how many does it take? Mm -hmm. How many people does it take to get there? We don't know for sure with COVID, like a lot of things. I think that in general, the thought is that it's somewhere between 70 and 80% of any individual group has to be protected from the infection to have it stop spreading. On the one side, that's probably how the flu pandemic of 1918 ended. There wasn't no, no grade of intervention. It just eventually seemed to dissipate. And the people say, well, maybe we should just be doing this with COVID. But there's some very serious considerations to that, as appealing as that might seem. Uh, mm -hmm. There was actually a group of physicians and scientists that wrote a, a physician piece in the Lancet. It's been referred to now as a John Snow Memorandum. It was a, probably about three or four weeks ago now. But it spoke to a few of the shortcomings with that. 
and they are number one. We just don't know how protective people are after they get sick. Mm -hmm. We have had some reinfections. Again, it's low. Number two is really the human cost just in terms of even now we're seeing it here in the Midwest, the risk of hospitals getting overwhelmed with sick patients, because the reality is that a significant number of people with COVID get really sick. And we still don't have widely available therapeutics that can help manage patients. So that's the other piece of it. We're a lot better than we were in April or March or May, but we're not in a situation where it's like influenza, where we can just support people who get sick. And we have lots of resources and health systems to do that. And then, you know, the third is what's really becoming more and more talked about And those are the long-term health effects of COVID. We still don't understand those completely yet, but we do know that there are a significant number of individuals who get sick with COVID, including younger patients who have long-term health effects, and they can be quite- Yeah, quite severe. Yeah, quite severe. Painful, Mm -hmm. hair loss, sleeplessness, difficulty thinking, those sorts of things. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, I've heard estimates that it would be in the United States alone, probably one to two million people would die of COVID if we just let it spread unchecked. But then that point you mentioned about hospitals being overwhelmed, you know, we think about the fact that if we're in a car accident or if someone's pregnant and needs to go, you know, it's going to the hospital to deliver, we think that those hospitals would be there for us. But if the entire hospital is overrun and just overworked and and all the beds are taken with patients who have COVID, well then other life-threatening diseases that are gonna still happen, heart attacks, strokes, you know, those individuals may not be able to get care. So it's much beyond COVID as well. Yeah, that's Um, an excellent point. Yeah, and then of course, think of all those people who get sick could have the serious medical consequences, like you said, lingering health effects, but also the financial consequences. Being in the intensive care unit, you know, that could bankrupt someone, um, depending on if they have health insurance coverage. So there's just so many reasons why it's not a good idea to just let the virus run through and have everyone get sick. Even if we try to protect our vulnerable populations, I don't think we'd be able to fully protect them. And I think that we don't completely understand who's vulnerable and who's not. I agree, and I hadn't even thought about that. Even in our own Mayo hospitals with the surge in cases in the area, we have to have people defer elective procedures. But those elective, I mean, they need that care. They're semi-elective procedures just because we need to make sure we have enough resources in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So if you're one of the people that's waiting for that, that's a serious event. And one thing, I, I was on a conference call last week webinar, I was a participant and they were talking about cancer care in the pandemic. And it was actually a Canadian physician who specializes in lung cancer talking about how with the pandemic, she's seeing more and more cases that are end stage by the time they actually see her. She's in because patients just aren't getting access to care earlier. And I mean, there's no easy choice here because there's clearly impact of the things we do to prevent the spread that people are feeling too, right? In terms Mm -hmm. of businesses being impacted and just personal lives being impacted, but There's tough choices all the way around. Let's talk about vaccines, because that's probably what's going to help here. Let's look on the bright side. So (laughs) I think one of the the easiest ways for for me to think about vaccines, actually, is essentially what we're trying to get to is artificial herd immunity or herd protection, not Mm -hmm. through getting people getting sick with COVID, but through getting a vaccine that makes their body respond as if they had gotten sick with COVID in terms of their immune response. I mean, to me, that's the real appeal of, of the vaccine is it helps definitely shorten that window and that gap. Yeah, you know, and some of the vaccines are targeting both the humoral immunity, the type that produces antibodies, as well as the cellular immunity, the type that 
triggers your cells to step up and start fighting. And that might actually be more protective in some individuals than their natural immunity. Because as you mentioned, we don't know how long natural immunity and antibodies actually last. So the vaccines might actually be able to help your body fight off the virus better than natural infection would. Yep. I mean, I'm not a vaccinologist, but yeah, uh, I'm an immunologist <laughs> at least. But the, but I mean, the vaccines, the way that they work is they try and gear your body to respond to as if it had gotten COVID. And it tries to do that with all different elements of your immune system because it is a system. So there's different means to do that. And that's why there's these different vaccine types. And so really the, with the trials that they're doing, they're trying to A, establish how each one is stimulating the immune system how effective that is. And the other piece of that is how safe is it, right? Because that's where the safety concerns come from as well, because right. you know they don't want to have unintended consequences of turning the immune system on or stimulating the immune response as well. So, And so that's probably the confusion people see, why so many different types of vaccines. The other is getting back to the whole concept of herd protection. We'll use that one. It was actually a little bit surprising to hear that with the FDA, said they will give an EUA if it shows a greater than 50% effectiveness in terms of the number of people that get a response. If you think about going through a vaccine, I bet if we just prior to the pandemic said, well, the flu vaccine is probably going to be about 50% effective in you not getting the flu, a lot of people would probably not opt to get it because it would just be, you know, it's not going to help that much for the hassle of getting a shot. But here, again, if 50% of the people that get vaccinated get immune, it doesn't mean that you can't have the same sense of security that you might if you knew it was 95%. But then again, it also helps increase that herd protection if at least half the people that are getting a vaccine actually get some level of immunity. That means they can't spread it as well. Right. And some people have been infected and may have protective antibodies. So that in combination with the vaccine might even improve herd protection. Yep, I agree. I got actually someone on Twitter asked me this question about are we seeing areas of, of the country that are having less spread now. There are. So I think in the Northeast, in the New York area, where there was a lot of COVID in the early days of the pandemic, I do think that the, the incidence is lower. But it's hard to know if that's because of herd immunity. Most of the serologic studies out of Spain and England and Europe don't suggest that there's been large amounts of seroconversion. So it's probably a combination of people, if it's been in your area, are more likely to take precautions than if not. So it's going to be multifactorial. And the vaccines will just be another piece of it, I guess, is really what it boils down to. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think we have a lot of reasons to be hopeful. We have a lot of good vaccines that are in trials right now. And I don't think it's inevitable that we're all going to get infected. I think that we have to continue doing our mitigation strategies, our masking and social distancing, and the vaccine will be another tool in this that will hopefully help us get a handle on the pandemic and, and start going back to normal. Yeah, I think you're right. So going back to that question of, is it going to end? Yes, it will end. People should have hope and it will end. It just probably isn't going to be a flip the switch. I mean, the vaccine makes you think, well, everyone will get a vaccine. This will be over and we're going to go back. It's probably going to be lots of different things that help shorten the amount of time that it takes for us not to have to worry about it. So it's not like the 1918 flu pandemic where from what we can tell from historical records, I think it probably looks like it took at least three years for that to really mm -hmm. kind of work its way through human race, essentially. It's interesting you bring that up. That's a great historical perspective. We've come so far since 1918, we have a global response with vaccines being produced around the world, several in the United States. So with a global response and with our new vaccine technology that wasn't available back then, I think we have a lot of reasons to be hopeful that this is not going to go on for three years with people continuing to die. We have protective measures that we can use. Yep. And I think the other thing for us is that 
you know, I was, I'm a, World War, you know me, I'm a, World War, I'm a history buff, uh, World War II history buff, and, you know, I talk about that as the greatest generation because they made great sacrifices for the protection of democracy. And here, I mean, it's a sacrifice. It's not one that we wanted to make, but if you think about it, coming out of this, I'm sure that we'll have a much more robust and effective global health infrastructure to help mm -hmm. respond to these things. And, you know, that's, the, unfortunately, this is what the kind of event it takes to get us there. So if we try and put all the suffering that we're seeing around this into a, a broader context, hopefully, eventually, as we get through this, we'll leave the world much more prepared so it doesn't have to go through something like this again. Yeah, you're the history buff. I'm the eternal optimist. And between us, yes, I think we have a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Excellent. <laughs> well, All right, that's, that's, a good way, that's a good way to end the yeah. podcast. <laughs> I agree. Well, until next week, Bill. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks, Bobby. Great yeah. as always. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday. <laughs>